You are listening to Arrive by The Cycling Podcast, supported by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. see what you're in once again second week in a row um you're in you seem to be in a deserted car park at a french is that french um, auto route air as they call them? it is it is daniel i'm in the cycling pod car having made a quick getaway from the velodrome in roubaix where they were packing up very noisily actually so my usual a season ticket in the grandstand there was not going to be the ideal recording location this evening because Paris-Roubaix is packing up. The circus is leaving town and it will be back again next year. But what a weekend. What a weekend. It's been, well, it's been a febrile couple of hours, Lionel, not least, um, well, in Roubaix and also from my vantage point for other reasons. But we won't go into that. Just how did the atmosphere, how did today's Roubaix compare to other editions that you've seen just the just the vibe Lionel in the in the velodrome it was it was frenetic it was frenetic Daniel I mean the weather was glorious this morning there was a real kind of early morning mist in Valenciennes when we got up and drove the hour and a half south to Compiègne and the mist kind of lifted just as we approached Compiègne and there was just a bright sunshine that just progressively got warmer and it was around it was the first real proper spring-like day that i've experienced in 2023 18 degrees i was i needed the factor 100 because it was pretty warm this afternoon and and i think the you know the the mild um tailwind that they had most of today and the warm temperatures accounted for an absolutely frenetic race We went to the Arenberg Forest because I was travelling with Lizzie Banks and Tom Wally. Neither Lizzie nor Tom had been to the Arenberg Forest before and I suppose in terms of going to watch Paris-Roubaix in the flesh, it is the place you have to experience because the atmosphere there is unbelievable. I mean, it feels almost like Belgium has leaked across the border a a few kilometres and uh, the crowds are, well, they're by three o'clock in the afternoon. They've had a few beers, some of them. There's lots of kind of almost football-style chanting and singing. There's music playing and then the race comes through and it's just a thundering noise of, well, the tyres make one type of noise which is uh, intimidating enough but then when you hear a rider coming past on one or perhaps two flat wheels and it's just you know hard rims against very hard stones it's a it's a real jolting experience in there poor electrifying old, poor old Derek G of Israel Premier Tech looked like he was being attacked by a snake do you see his tubular came off and it was all up around his ears it was um, a terrifying sight <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, lots of talk was about Jumbo Visma and DSM and their self-inflating tyres and whether or not that was going to be a factor. But yeah, it's a race, you know, I, I don't want to use the phrase Russian roulette 
lightly because obviously Russian roulette's a, a, a pretty um, you know savage idea, isn't it? Really, but it's a it's a race of luck. It's a lottery. You buy a ticket in Compiègne and you see what kind of uh, result you get in the Roubaix Velodrome. And the Velodrome itself, the crowd was huge, enthusiastic, and uh, well, as you heard at the very start, the the greeting for Matthew van der Poel was uh, extremely warm. We were just denied the perfect outcome, weren't we? The whole spring we've been waiting for Matthew van der Poel and Wout van Aert to go properly head-to-head. And, well, they did, then they didn't, then they did again. Uh, but it was van der Poel finishing solo in the velodrome. Really impressive ride, wasn't it? It was. Uh, but as you say, we were denied. We were... Well, unfortunately treated to a bit of an anticlimax in the sense it was a bit like well there's a rumble in the jungle rumble on the rubble only i don't know george foreman <laughs> stubbed his toe on the way into the ring after i don't know in the seventh round um yeah which was a bit yeah, of a shame it was it was but Actually, I mean, the whole race was, it seemed to be decided in those mad 90 seconds on the Carrefour de Labra, didn't it? Um, I mean, shall I run through the moments of the monument? Do because that. for the second week in a row, one of this extraordinary generation of riders has collected a third of the monuments. Matthew van der Poel has added Paris-Roubaix to the Tour of Flanders, which he's won before, and Milan San Remo, which he won a few weeks ago. Only the third... Um, ride by Vanderpool at Paris-Roubaix. He rode the wet one where he kind of messed up his finish um, a couple of years ago. But to win it at the third attempt, I mean, it, it feels like he's been trying to win it a little bit longer than that because this is a race that when you see him flying over those final kilometres, uh, it looks like he was born to race this more so than any of the other monuments. And it was really a masterclass by Alpecin de Koenig, his team, wasn't it? I mean, they were present very early on. Uh, Jenny Vermeersch was one of the early kind of movers trying to get things going. They were policing stuff pretty early on. The early break, well... Like in Flanders last week, it wasn't an early break at all. Uh, it took almost 100 kilometres before anything got away, shortly before the first sector of cobbles at Troisville. And it was uh, Schurd Bax of UAE, Jonas Koch of Bora Hansgrohe, Yuri Holman of Movistar, and that man Derek G of Israel Premier Tech, a Canadian rider, perhaps inspired by Alison Jackson's ride yesterday. There were splits in the peloton, and really it was just before Arenberg that it really kicked off. So we're, what are we talking there, about 100 kilometres to go. And that was when Van Aert, Van der Poel, Degenkolb, Christophe Laporte, Stefan Kuhn got clear. We saw that Laporte punctured and was replaced in that front group by Mads Pedersen of Trek Segafredo. And at some point over the next bit of chaos, Jasper Philipson and Jani Vermeersch of Alpecin de Koenig got across. Filippo Ganna got in there, Max Valscheid of Cofidis and Lawrence Rex of Antamarche. And that really was the, the group that decided the race. One by one, those early riders uh, from the breakaway were dropped by that group. And pretty much like with the women's race, it was approaching mons en pavel with around 50 kilometres to go that it all kicked off again. Matthew van der Poel, Philipson, Van Aert, Kung, Pedersen, Degenkolb, that group got clear and Van der Poel and Van Aert started trading attacks. They briefly got away together, didn't they? Uh, Philipson had to change his bike. Ganna got across. And then we had this stellar group of riders all together until, as I say, those crazy 90 seconds on the car for Delabra. I don't know what you made of the crash, the John Degenkolb crash, Daniel, but he moved over to the right-hand side, didn't he? And just as he moved back in again, uh, Van der Poel went through the middle 
and Degenkolb hit the deck. And that was coincidentally, I think, the moment that Van Aert launched one of his accelerations. Van der Poel got across. Then Van der Poel hit him with the kind of counter acceleration. And at that moment, Van Aert punctured and rode apparently the last kilometre of the sector on a flat rear tyre. And then, well, no one was going to stop Van der Poel in that kind of flight, were they? And Philipson made it a 1-2 for Alpecin de Koenig on the velodrome track. Wout van Aert, a slightly disappointed third. Mads Pedersen, fourth. Stefan Kung, fifth. And Filippo Ganna, sixth. I mean, phew. 50 kilometres an hour for each of the first two hours. Another blistering race. Um, Yeah. And the fastest But it was all about those 90 seconds. It was, was it? Yeah, yes, it I was, was waiting for confirmation of that, actually. Yeah, of, oh, 47 breathtaking and stuff. change, I believe. But as you say, like, the Carrefour de Lab, I mean, it's not the first time that the Carrefour de Lab has, has really been the, well, the, the key point of the race and where riders have seen their chances go arise. I mean, even in recent history, Torhusov crashed there in 2009. Tom Boonen sort of soloed away from him. 2013, that was where Stein Vandenberg and uh, Stenik Stebach uh, crashed into the spectators, wasn't it? And, you know, at times, uh, Van der Poel looked like, well, uh, there were a lot of occasions today where I was um, fearful for um, Van der Poel. He was taking a lot of risks on some of the corners, um, even on the very last cobbled section or the penultimate cobbled section um he seems to be taking unnecessary risks and um yeah it was uh, well i used the word, word febrile when we started the pod and as you say they were a very febrile 90 seconds and well desperately sad and unlucky for van Aert, but we'll talk about him in a minute but even more so for john degenkolb uh, you know a rider who really built his name reputation on well excelling in Paru bay not least in 2015 that was his sort of his golden year and then of course the following year um or in 2015 he also won milan san remo i should say in 2016 then it had a terrible crash along with um, several of his it was somewhere but the time they were called weren't they teammates at a training camp they were um, um they were hit by a vehicle at their training camp and you know by general consensus people sort of say has never really been the same again although he did win the cobbled stage of the tour de france i think in 2018 and it was sort of vintage john degenkoll wasn't it i mean he looked like one of the stronger riders in that group and he was very cruelly denied i don't know if you've seen the picture but uh, Jasper Phillips and, and Mathieu van der Poel were very, well, they were very keen to commiserate with John Degenkolb, understandably so, because they ultimately um, unwittingly caused him to crash on the Carford Lab. And as you said, it was seconds thereafter, really, that Wout van Aert's fate was sealed by, I think, the second puncture he suffered today. He suffered one shortly before, well, he opened the hostilities with 104 kilometers to go. Um, and he just punctured, just got a bike change and then punctured again. I don't know if you, I don't know if you heard anything about this uh, line or got any intel on this, but, you know, maybe we'll talk in a minute about the sort of the luck uh, versus preparation and versus kind of marginal gains equation and to what extent you can guard against punctures. But I think Van Aert was on the same tyres as Van der Poel today. They've got Vittoria tyres that the team have been trying out since the winter. I know that's what Van der Poel was certainly on. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of talk in the lead up to the race about this self-inflating tyre system that Jumbo Visma and DSM both have access to, but Van Aert wasn't on that system, I believe, although there's been sort of conflicting uh, reports about this in the velodrome the this afternoon. Was. Laporte was on the, on the, um, uh, the self-inflating system. I mean, this is all... I mean, this is all mad science to me, but Tom Wally and Lizzie Banks, uh, who host our tech show that's not really a tech show, Service Course, they're all over this, and they'll be talking about this in the next episode of Service Course. Um, on Van der Poel, he actually said he didn't feel he took any extraordinary risks in that final phase of the race. He said it was all under control, he knew what he was doing, and, uh, you know, the slipping and sliding is just part of it. You know, having having those moments where the bike feels like it might go out of control but then keeping it upright is it one of the key skills at times it seemed gratuitous wow. um it wasn't you know that wasn't the reason that he won the race it certainly wasn't the reason why on the penultimate um sector he was able to sort of consolidate and then open up the gap um i don't know i don't know but I think it was you that coined the phrase that Van der Poel is the exponent of sort of PlayStation cycling, you know, where, you know, he moves left, he moves right, as if he's playing some kind of cycling version of the old video game Frogger, you know, mm. trying to get uh, from one side of the road to the other without uh, mishap. I mean, he is an, exp- well, they all are, but uh, particularly Van der Poel and Van Aert with the cyclocross skills, um, they are exceptional bike handlers. And that makes a difference when on the limit, certainly in terms of speed if not in terms of control Vanderpool did also talk about the incident with Degenkolb he said he didn't know if it was his fault or not but if it was his fault apologies you know it was one of those racing incidents that happened in the blink of an eye and uh, you know he, he didn't realize that Degenkolb was coming back in as he was moving up to go um, alongside his teammate Philipson but yeah that was uh, that was a, a key moment in that finale wasn't it because uh, that was when Van Aert was choosing to ride off the front i mean everybody was watching for that kind of move because it was getting very late and that that group was probably uncomfortably big for both van der Poel and van art they wanted to whittle it down and since well sort of mons on pavel and a couple of sectors at either side of that with about 50 kilometers to go there'd been a bit of a stalemate hadn't there which is often the case in Paro bay there are sort of uh, two or three key points in the in the last hundred kilometers or so, sort of key five to ten kilometer sections, and one is with about fifty k to go, and then the next one really is around about the car four, isn't it? And there had been a bit of a hiatus, and we did sort of wonder at that point whether they were well, we we thought there would be attacks certainly on the car four de l'Arbre, um, but there there was a time where it looked as though there might be quite a big group. Um, that would go into the velodrome together. And that would have been uh, an interesting prospect with a lot of fast riders, particularly Philipson. I mean, I guess the Alpacin would have worked for him at that point had they gone into the velodrome with Van der Poel in the group. And then Degenkolb was there, who was also obviously a fast rider, Van Aert and so on and so forth. Yeah, interesting that because they were both asked that in the press conference afterwards. If they had come together in a group, how would they have arranged the finish? Would Van der Poel have worked for Philipson or the other way round? And they both really sidestepped that question and said, well, we, you know, it didn't play out that way and we hadn't started thinking about it. Uh, Van der Poel did say, though, that Van Aert's puncture was the decisive moment. I mean, obviously it was, but it was quite magnanimous of him to say that. He said it's really unlucky for Van Aert and that without that, it would have been a very different finale and he would have had to have thought of a different way to uh, sort it out at the finish. Uh, 
it, but he did make the point that sometimes you just need a little bit of luck. And I thought Van der Poel made his luck because, again, a bit like Pogacar making hay when the course shined or whatever my terrible analogy was last week Vanderpool, it was noticeable that whenever the, the the tarmac sections offered that little bit of rise where he could really turn on the power he did try and make use of that to just stretch the the legs of the people that he was with and and, and maybe um, get clear you know he was clearly racing and he was clearly looking for any opportunity to get ahead of Van Art. and yeah they did trade blows uh, in the ring briefly, but we didn't see the kind of the grandstand sort of twelfth round, uh, you know, um, you know, culmination in the velodrome. Uh, I suspect on the form today it would have been very very close. I mean, Van Aert made the point that he actually felt like he had the legs to do better, and he obviously disappointed uh, that the puncture cost him. And Van der Poel, I heard him say that this, it was one of his best days on a bike today. Um, but it's interesting as well, the, the ledger, the Alpecin versus Jumbo Visma, sort of ledger Alpecin, one of the few teams up until three or four weeks ago who had not won a race yet. They were quite slow to get off the mark this year. And Jumbo Visma, of course, were sweeping, well, they were wiping the floor with everyone. And yet we get to the end of the Cobble Classics. And as far as the... The big prizes are concerned, the monuments, Jumbo Visma are coming away empty-handed. Um, and Alpecin were pretty exemplary today, weren't they? They were very keen. They were one of the teams who were incredibly keen to, well, make the race hard in the first hour, two hours, three hours, as it turned out. Sylvain Dillier and others, um, Vermish, you mentioned, they were very instrumental in making that first part of the race really, really difficult. And... Philipson, I thought, looked like one of the strongest. I mean, he finished second, but he looked like one of the strongest riders even on the cobbles, didn't he? Certainly did, yeah. I mean, again, Van der Poel talked about the fact that there was no break, really, to speak of. He said they raced like juniors from start to finish. And, you know, we're seeing this more and more, aren't we? And I, I do wonder whether the fact that the early break that got away in the women's race yesterday, we talked a lot about this in uh, last night's episode of Arrivé, Lizzie Banks and I were making the point that this additional loop at the start meant that there was more opportunity for a break to go clear before the first section of cobbles. And that break got out of hand five minutes 40. And there was a bit of talk around the buses this morning about because it was going to be fast, the weather was going to be nice and warm, light ripple of tailwind, uh, a fast race and a big um, break up the road with a decent time gap very very dangerous we could have seen a sort of Stuart O'Grady 2007 edition again because it's similar conditions today and I think so many teams very very keen just to keep a lid on things until they're in sort of touching distance of the cobbles and by that point it's it's just I mean it as I say we went into a bit of a sort of communications black spot in the Arenberg Forest because obviously everyone's trying to watch the race on their phones. No signal works. It's all kind of Chinese whispers about, uh, you know, what might be going on in the race. And then it came past us and you just see a blur of uh, of, of, of jerseys and, and realise that Van Aert's up there, Laporte's up there, Van der Poel's up there. And it was just, you know, race on from that point. And then you think, well, it's 96 kilometres still to go extraordinary intense racing and uh yeah a real spectacle i'm sure for those who were lucky enough to see a lot more of it than i did and just 
to comment before we well maybe talk about some of the losers Lionel in the second part um Vanderbilt I mean obviously everyone is in raptures about the start of the season he's had he's completely dominated well the first part of the season with the exception of last week um Tour of Flanders he's dominated the the classics I suppose and you said it was his it was his fourth monument wasn't it um that's two Flanders now one Roubaix one Milan San Remo um, he's the first rider since Fabian Cancellara in 2014 to finish in the top three of all three, first three monuments of the year. Um, a few other riders have done the San Remo double, uh, San Remo Paris-Roubaix double before. Sean Kelly did it in 1986. John Degenkolb we mentioned 2015. And before all of them, there was a gentleman called uh, Cyril Van Howert in i probably pronounced that wrong a belgian gentleman in 1908 who did the double but his feat was much more impressive why Lionel? because he rode from belgium to the start of milan Remo in milan wow I'd like to the find original... out more about that journey because it feels yeah, like it the... would have to be quite carefully planned um there were probably some french auto route airs involved yeah the original bike packing hipster. Nice one, Cyril. Yeah. Lastly, for this part, Daniel, I've got a question for you. So Van der Poel has now won Milan San Remo, Tour of Flanders and Paris-Roubaix. That leaves of this, uh, the five monuments, that leaves Liège, Bastogne-Liège and Ile Lombardia. Can he win either of those two, do you think? I think he can win Liège. Yes, I do think he can. Um, I would have my doubts about Lombardy, but we've seen riders in the past who were cut from well more of a sort of cobbled classics cloth um another terrible analogy metaphor image and like for example philip gilbert we talked about him a few days ago and the breadth of his palmares and he's a guy who i wouldn't uh, have necessarily predicted would win a lombardy he entered that period of his career where he became almost unbeatable for two or three years and i can i can see vanderpool sort of uh, well widening his rep repertoire to uh, enough of an extent to win hilly classics but tour of lombardy tricky also you have to consider the competition don't you and it looks as though at the moment Tadej Pogacar has Tour of Lombardy pretty much on lock and also I mean we're going to talk about Van Aert versus Van der Poel I think we've seen more until now from Van Aert on longer climbs than we've seen from Van der Poel. Van der Poel at times has seemed to sort of abdicate whenever he's had things to fight for um, in races featuring longer climbs and he uh, hasn't looked um, terribly sort of interested in defending jerseys, defending race leads when there have been five, 10 kilometer climbs to go over. That might change, but of course you have to do that in to win Lombardy. You have to be able to compete with the best guys over six, seven, eight kilometer climbs. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Yeah, Nasserich, tell me about your day in hell. It was a bit different to the last time we met, hey? Yeah, true. Uh, yeah, a lot of bad luck today for us. Uh, I think three guys had to change the bike. Uh, me, Marijn, and uh, I think also Tom was in trouble. Uh, yeah, then we changed after Arenberg. I changed my bike with Marijn uh, because I had a double flat tire and uh, I did 20k on Marijn's bike. Then I changed back, had another flat tire. 
finally came back to the group for place 15, I think. Yeah, and then I did the best possible in the end. But yeah, that was not uh, what we came for. But yeah, we need to accept that. Eh? It is what it is. Sometimes you're on the lucky side, sometimes not. That was Jonas Ruch of the EF Education Easy Post team, who Lizzie Banks spoke to in the velodrome shortly after the finish, talking about the, the litany of problems that he had, and that further highlights just how many difficulties riders can have and how important it is to have a little bit of luck on your side. Ruch finished 33rd. It was his third edition of Pay Bay. He was very impressive on his debut, the October autumnal Pay Bay, a couple of years ago when he finished 11th. But really, the story of the day for Wout van Aert was that puncture on the Carrefour de l'Arbre. And yeah, he cut quite a dejected figure at the finish. I mean, I asked a couple of weeks ago whether, you know, the gifting of Gent Wevelgem to Christophe Laporte would in some way you know not come back to bite him but whether that might be something that he would look back on and and, and regret slightly and I mean you can't really reproach Jumbo Visma for their cobbled classics campaign because they have been exceptional but on the other hand they've come up short both at the Tour of Flanders and Paris-Roubaix and unfortunately you would probably swap a, a little collection of the other races for one of the big ones wouldn't you? Absolutely absolutely um, I don't know if you saw any of the pictures of Van Aert and Van der Poel at the finish line but and there was a moment where Van Aert sort of tapped Van der Poel on the back and, and Van der Poel took a quite a long time to sort of turn around and acknowledge him but it, it did it left me wondering, this is sort of the question we've all been wondering for um, two or three years now, how these two really deep down um, when the mics are off, um, how they really feel about each other and how Wout van Aert felt today about seeing van der Poel triumph. Again, you know, we had that period, well, spurred by the Tour de France last year when van der Poel was having his problems and they seem to be chronic back problems and there was a question mark even going into this year whether he would ever rescale the same heights as uh, two or three years ago and the the rivalry has sort of reverted to its old kind of well not not really equilibrium um it's almost become a little bit mismatched again in terms of results in the same way that their cyclocross respective cyclocross records have been a bit mismatched in terms of van der Poel usually getting the the upper hand and it must really really great um however magnanimous van Aert appears to be and he does a very good job of certainly um giving that impression in public you've got to imagine, particularly, as you say, after the semi-classics season that they had and our, all of our preconceptions about how dominant Jumbo Visma were going to be, um, he must be absolutely spitting teeth. Yeah, and what's interesting is that for both Van Aert and Van der Poel, that is kind of it for quite a long period of time now. They're not going to race any more of the classics. It looks at the moment like they're both going to return to racing at the Tour de Suisse in June and then the Tour de France. Certainly Van der Poel confirmed that that is the plan at the moment. And so this fantastic rivalry that we've waited for the, you know, the blue touch paper to be lit this spring, we've seen it kind of flicker and fizz and and now that's it. They're not going to either of them ride Liège-Bastogne-Liège, which, you know, is a race that uh, would suit both of them. And it will be a long while before we see them go head to head again. And in the Tour de France, they will both have quite, different kind of roles within their teams won't they but uh, just on uh, Van Aert because it was 
probably a quite a poignant day for him because this weekend marked the fifth anniversary of the death of Michael Hulats, who was his Verandas Willems teammate back in 2018. Uh, actually, that was when Van Aert made his Paris-Roubaix debut. Van Aert finished 13th and, of course, later found out that his teammate Hulats had died because he suffered a cardiac arrest during the race. And, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's you know, a day I remember very well, that 2018 Paris-Roubaix. And uh, for Van Aert, you know, it must, uh, it must have been, you know, in his mind reaching the fifth anniversary of that uh, event, having been in the same team. At the start in Compiègne this morning, Daniel, I spoke to a number of people just around the team buses asking who they expected to be figuring in the shakedown at the finish and the same names came up time and time again van der Poel and van Aert of course but also Mads Pedersen, Stefan Kung, Filippo Ganna and Kasper Asklin and apart from Asklin the others all had a really good day on the cobbles and uh, were in the decisive move the one that eventually you know, shook it down and, and, and it all got sorted out on the Carrefour de Labra. Uh, it was a kind of a, a day when, you know, the, the best riders in good form came to the top. And I suspect that was because it was such a fast and furious race. There was absolutely no way to kind of, you know, get lucky in the sense of, you know, getting carried along with less than 100% legs, I guess. Yeah, I think yeah, the riders you mentioned, all of them, with the exception of Asgreen, they will be pretty proud of their performances. Pedersen kind of confirmed his status, and this whole spring has really confirmed his status as the best of the, the sub-Galacticos, uh, maybe alongside Christophe Laporte when it comes to the Cobble Classics. Um, he had to make a big effort after Arenberg Forest to get back uh, on terms with the Van Aert and Van der Poel group, but he did that, and um, he'll be pretty pretty pleased with his classics campaign, albeit he comes away without a win. Uh, Stefan Kung as well. It's another sort of step forward, baby step forward for him. I think in his career, um, it's sometimes still difficult to to imagine how he's going to win one of these races when Van Aert and Van der Poel are are there and on form. And then Filippo Ganna, I mean, this was really, I think for, for Ganna, it was year one of an experiment of a long-term plan for him to win Paris-Roubaix, wasn't it? He, we talked about him a few days ago, having really focused on Paris-Roubaix this year. Of course, he won it when he was a junior, wasn't it? It was the junior or the Espoir version? I think it was the junior version. And it was, I think this is about his fourth Paris-Roubaix today, but the first time he'd really targeted it. And, you know, we talked about how adept Van der Poel was around the corners and how acrobatic he was. Sometimes Ganna was a little bit clunky around the bends and he was sort of, he was losing um, fractions of a second on some of the more technical cobbled sections. And he also looked pretty spent at the end. And in fact, I heard an interview from him and he sounded incredibly spent, but I think it's a Pretty positive debut for him. Another Ineos Grenadiers debut we should mention, Lionel, um, Josh Tarling, the 18-year-old who I think was the youngest rider to do Paris-Roubaix for 70-something years or around 70 years. Um, he finished outside the time limit, but as we know, have read about, heard about in the past, you know, those riders who do manage to finish, make it to the velodrome um, and who are daily outside the time limit. I mean, that is a bit of a rite of passage, isn't it? And it's a sort of, it's a kind of 
mythical experience in its own right to be able to do that. And I'm sure he'll take a lot from today. Um, and it will certainly be a, have been a very, very memorable day for him. Yeah, I gather Project Ghana, I mean, that is his best result in four appearances. I gather that he was, you know, delighted with the conditions this morning, you know, not keen on it being wet. So perhaps we'll need a, a dry day if he's to win Peru Bay. And I think the, the, the plan is to get him into a position where he can unleash his sort of hour of power in the key part of the race, you know, that last 50-odd kilometres. And I suppose it was interesting that that is where it all kicked off. These riders now are so dialed in that they know what they can produce over that last kind of, you know, 50 minutes, 60 minutes, 65 minutes, something like that. And, uh, yeah, big steps forward, I think, for Ghana today. Um, just on Casper uh, Askreen, Unfortunately, he crashed. Uh, the other riders that were notable um, victims of crashes, Dylan Van Bala, the defending champion, he crashed out. And Peter Sagan as well uh, crashed in his final Paris-Roubaix and was being checked over for concussion in hospital in Cambrai, the last I uh, heard. And yeah, they were probably three of the biggest name, um, you know, casualties, victims of the, of the crashes, three riders that might uh, in different circumstances have been uh, a bit more prominent in that last 50 kilometers. We always say, don't we, after Paris-Roubaix, that it takes a sort of exercise in kind of forensic science or archaeology to find out exactly what happened to everyone um, in the three or four days uh, that follow Paris-Roubaix. Um, so no doubt we will hear a lot of sort of battle stories over the next few days. But there were a lot of teams who will be, well, they'll be licking their wounds either figuratively or literally tonight. Bora Hansgrohe had a bad day. I quite fancied Niels Pollitt, but he had um, quite a lot of problems in the middle portion of the race and then um, was nowhere to be seen in the finale. Um, Sudal, quick step, you mentioned just an, a rotten, wretched Cobble Classics campaign for them. But as we said a couple of weeks ago, it was pretty wretched last year and they saved their classics campaign thanks to Remco Evenepoel at Liège-Bastogne-Liège. Uh, Bahrain victorious, they were quite heavily fancied today and they've been, well, they've been riding really well in Pyro Bay, particularly since Sonny Colbrelli won a couple of years ago. Mohoric had issues and was never really in the mix. Lotto Destiny as well. Um, there were others, AG2R, I remember sort of fanfare about AG2R's new classics division two or three years ago um oliver narson and greg van avermaet they unfortunately look um as though they're sort of heading towards the twilight of their classics careers those particular riders yeah quick word though for john degenkohl because he did pick himself up from that nasty looking crash i gather he had on his top tube on his bike uh, an easter egg design for, uh, made by his little child i mean i'm hearing this second or third hand through the Degenkolb grapevine. But uh, yeah, picked himself up and finished seventh. A word also for Max Valscheid of Cofidis and Lawrence Rex of Antomarche, who finished eighth and ninth respectively, because, you know, they were hanging on to the coattails of some, you know, really powerful riders at various points and, and did well to get into the velodrome in the top 10. And the battle of the unrelated Vermeersch, Jani uh, just pipped Florian, uh, Gianni finished 11th and Florian finished 
12th. And you mentioned Josh Tarling as the youngest rider in the race. Somebody else caught my eye today, didn't finish. Ivan Romeo of Movistar, the second youngest rider in the race. I mean, he's not been at Movistar long enough to be sent on the mythical Movistar Classics punishment um, campaign, but he's done pretty much every Cobble Classic since Omloop Het Newsblad and has done pretty well in a lot of them, only 19 years of age. Do you know, I saw another Movistar rider out on the roads in uh, Mallorca today. I think it was Albert Torres, who is from, um, is he from Mallorca or Menorca? Um, but I thought he would be a candidate for the, for the Movistar punishment tour, actually, on the cobbles. But no, he dodged that. I may be overstating slightly his performances here. I mean, 76 in Het Newsblad and 76 in the E3 Saxo Classic, his best results. But decent as a, uh, a young rider. And... We've mentioned juniors and racing like juniors. The junior Paris-Roubaix was held as well today. AG2R Citroën's under-19 team did have a very good day. First and second, Matisse Grussel of France and Oscar Chamberlain of Australia were first and second. And three other names leapt out at me from the results sheet. Um, sixth place, Erozam Valjevic, Daniel, son of Tadej Valjevic, former uh, Slovenian who did pretty well in the GC at the Tour and the Giro still back a in the day. Still a Slovenian, as far as we know. Not just a former Slovenian, still a Slovenian. <laughs> still a Slovenian, certainly. A former professional rider. It's been a long day, Daniel. The sun was very warm. My, my face is very hot. Um, Markel Belocchi, son of Joseba Belocchi, 25th. And Ben Wiggins, son of Bradley Wiggins, 50th. So some names to look out for in future editions of the well, first Espoir and then Senior editions of Paris Roubaix no doubt Lionel Lionel I think we'll be back on Wednesday will we all around about then around the middle part of the week the sort of the Monson Pavel kind of phase of the week <laughs> um, to talk a little bit more about Paris Roubaix and to look ahead as well maybe to the classics we've still got to come sort of changing pace in the classic season now changing terrain certainly changing road Indeed. surface Indeed, yeah. Uh, what does that make Friday? Is Friday the Carrefour de Labra? Is that where I need to keep an eye out? Make sure I don't come a cropper on a Friday? It sort of is. Um, I feel like every day is the Arenberg Forest <laughs> of every week. But, um, oh, brilliant. Lionel, what you got planned for tonight? So you're, in the, you're, you're on the auto route. You're not going to make it over I'm, the channel tonight. I'm not, so not headed tonight, for an Ibis. no. Or something. Uh, it's actually a holiday in. Uh, yeah, I've got, I got sort of bumped on the Euro Tunnel. Um, basically, it's very, very busy this weekend. It's Easter weekend. Lots of British spectators come over for Paris-Roubaix as well. People come over for a, a little break at Easter. And this Sunday and Monday are very, very busy. And I basically got bumped to a train that was you know, far too close to midnight. And so I've decided to stay over and I will go home first thing in the morning. Having said goodbye to Tom Wally, who's back on the train up to Nottingham already, and to Lizzie and Gabriel Banks, who are on their way back down to the south of France. Uh, and uh, we will at some point put out a, a, a weekend in hell. I don't know whether it was, well, it certainly wasn't hell for me. It may well have been hell for those guys uh, who were my company over the weekend. But uh, we recorded all sorts of nonsense as we zipped between the cobbled zones today and uh, yesterday. And that will be out at some point. And yeah, well, like you say, Daniel, we'll... We'll, we'll find out what we missed by Wednesday when we record with our Paris-Roubaix expert, hopefully. Until then. Thank you very much. Have a pleasant evening. Thank you, Lionel.
The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burney. Thank you.